Good morning. Um, today's reading is from Acts um, chapter 15. Um, it's uh, nearly the whole chapter from uh, verse 1 all the way through to verse 35. And it's on uh, page 896 in the Church Bibles, but I've just come to realise there's two versions. So if you've got the other one, it's on page 1108. Um, it's also in the leaflet and on the screen. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way and as they travelled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name says the Lord who does these things, things known from long ago. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Then the apostles and elders, with the whole church, decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They, call, they chose Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, men who were leaders among the believers. With them, they sent the following letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. 
So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. So the men were sent off and went down to Antioch where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the believers. After spending some time there, they were sent off by the believers with the blessing of peace to return to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, where they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord. Well, it's great to be back again this week. Um, for those of you who don't know, my name's Craig, and I work for a mission organisation called City Bible Forum, which helps people to be missionaries in their workplace where God has put them. If you're in that category, we want to help you um, to serve God in the, the area where he's put you. So please come and make yourself known to me after the service or fill it in on the card and then we'll follow you up through the week and uh, let you know some of the things that we uh, do to try and help equip you to uh, be lights uh, and salt where God's put you through the week. Last week we were in Acts 10 and... Uh, I challenged you with a very unusual question, which only makes sense if you really read Acts chapter 10, but the question was, who is in your sheet? Who is in your sheet? And it was in the light of verse 15 where God said, uh, don't call anything impure that I have made clean. That is to say, we've all got our own prejudices, we've all got our own uh, categories that we put people into, can we can write people off. Uh, as being too hard, uh, too far gone, not worth it, not clean enough to be part of God's family. And I said, who is in your sheet? Because we all have somebody in our sheet. And I encourage you to go home, have a look at Acts 10 again, confess to God the people that are in that sheet and ask him to give you a new vision so that you can see how much the gospel can transform the people around you. I hope you did it. Well, this week, uh, I want to start by telling you a story. A story about two churches, and they're both in Melbourne. One had a dwindling congregation, faithful to the gospel, but very, very big on history. They were approached by a young minister who was setting up a church plant in the nearby apartment blocks that had developed around the church, and uh, that, that he was beginning to make some headway, and that congregation were meeting in a pub downstairs in one of the apartment blocks. And the reason he did that was he knew that the, the people who were coming to church wouldn't have fitted into the church culture that was currently there at the old church, but they wanted to work together. So they began a partnership. And of course, over the years, people became Christians. And then some of these new Christians in the apartment blocks wanted to be on the leadership team of uh, the church. So before long, they were dwarfing the previous leadership team and the original congregation could see that their power base was dwindling. They had one trump card up their sleeve and that was a new process. And uh, so they made the new members go through hurdles and hoops 
So much so that in the end, in the frustration, the new church packed up, left and established itself and went on to be quite uh, a going concern. You see, mission success can create crisis. Um, there's a second church, and this is the picture of it. Um, it's Swanston Street Church of Christ. That's what it was known as. It was established in 1853. It always had a passion for overseas mission work, particularly in uh, Asian countries. And the church had contacts with Asian students in particular from 1964 onwards. And uh, those Students started to come in increasing numbers over the, the next 30 years and uh, it responded by making those students feel really welcome at their church. Um, quietly, this became the major ministry of the church, second to its missions work over in the countries where these students were coming from. And in 2006, they decided to change their name to Cross Culture Church of Christ because they stood for the cross of Christ at the centre of their life and secondly, they were standing at a crossroad of cultures within that um, strip in Swanson Street in Melbourne with people coming from all over the world. Nowadays, this is what it looks like. You can see the little church dwarf there by the apartment block behind it. That apartment block, they're part of. They've got the church in the basement. They worked that out with the property developer and now they've got access to ministering to all the 500 students who live in that apartment block as well, who come and go year, year by year. It's a completely different place. A thousand people, um, this is their sort of conclusion on their website. They say, we can outreach as never before to students, both overseas and local, calling people into service for the kingdom. So two churches, same city, um, one handles uh, mission success well, the other handles it poorly. Now, if you come now to Acts 15, where we were just had read to us, following the success of mission in Acts chapter 10, when you had Cornelius, the first convert, the, the first convert who was a Gentile to become uh, a fully-fledged Christian and his family come into the church. By the time you get to this discussion in Acts chapter 15, you're a decade on. And back in Acts chapter 10, they, uh, Peter said, I suppose God has granted even Gentiles repentance that leads to life. Well, now the Gentiles are coming in in their droves into uh, the church. They believe the gospel and they're dwarfing the Jerusalem church just by their sheer numbers. So no, no longer God-fearers like Cornelius who'd already adopted some of the Jewish customs. Now you had just rank outsiders becoming Christians who didn't know anything about the Jewish way of life coming into the faith. And they were bringing their culture and their people group and their cities characteristics with them as they became Christians and mission was creating a crisis and the crisis was this how Jewish do the Christians need to be to be acceptable how Jewish do these new Gentile Christians need to be to be acceptable that's the question that preoccupies Acts 15 threatened by this massive influx of non-Jewish Christians into the church some saw the need for the Gentiles 
to be circumcised and it was a scriptural mandate for them. Now tears come to our eyes at the thought of adult men going through this process so they could follow Jesus and if you're a man you'll understand what I'm saying here but some Jewish Christians actually thought that this was biblical. They thought it was the evidence that the Gentiles would be descendants of Abraham just like them. It was an argument from the Bible, not just culture, and it came out of a genuine desire to try and honour the word of God, that is the Old Testament at this point. So have a look closely with me at verse 1. Some uh, men came down from Judea to Antioch, and they were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. They say it again, verse 5, in the meeting, some of the believers who belonged to this party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. You must behave like this. It is absolutely necessary for you. It's not it would be helpful. It's must, cannot, unless. So can you see why this is going to be a big issue to discuss. This is a huge threat to the gospel spreading further. They're not saying Gentiles can't become Christians. They're just saying they need to be Jewish as well. And this is how serious it got that Paul had to tick off the head of the church at the time, which was Peter, with this statement. You can see it in Galatians 2 on the screen there. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision party. Now, apart from the fact that those two words, circumcision party, that's a pretty unusual combination to put together. But apart from that, what is it really saying? It's saying that even the head of the church at the time buckled under the social pressure to fit in as a Jew into his past and so much so that he got wobbly over the whole thing of what made somebody a Christian. So why does Paul go down to Jerusalem to sort this out? Um, Because it's absolutely critical for going forward, for growing any further as a church. There are two issues here. The two issues are these. The first one is the fundamental question about how people get rescued So the gospel that was being preached to them said the only thing that they brought to the cross was their sin. Everything else was the contribution by Jesus to sort them out with God. Now that was getting challenged. And the other thing was how do people from different backgrounds and countries and religious diversities, how do they come together and have a meal around the table and have fellowship with one another. Because, you see, Peter was withdrawing himself, and that was a huge slap in the face to say, I can't eat with you because you're not Jewish enough. You see, the church is fracturing down the middle here, and Paul and Barnabas represent the sort of more edgy, sort of, you know, Gentile left corner, and you've got James and the circumcision party, those guys on the other side representing the right-wing's conservatives. And before you know it, this will threaten to rupture the church in two. So what are they going to do about it? They call a meeting, uh, verse 6 to 21. It's not to discuss the building or the finances or the staffing for the following year. Um, It's a more fundamental question resulting from the gospel spreading. 
And Luke preserves a summary of that meeting for us. It's not everything that happened in the meeting, but, you know, like most meetings, they go on for a long time. This one, verse 7, after much discussion, lots of discussion in meetings. But what we've got here is enough for us to see how they handled the conflict and worked through it. So let's look at it together. Um, The first thing you notice is uh, Peter gets up and he's regained his composure and understanding of the gospel. And he recaps in verse 7... What has happened over a decade with Cornelius, over a decade ago with Cornelius? So look at verses 7 to 9. Essentially, he says, God chose the Gentiles. He gave them the Holy Spirit. Um, He purified their hearts. And he concludes, why would you make the Gentiles do what we Jews have found difficult to do all our lives? And if you want a word picture for this, it would have to be this um, donkey here uh, in Cairo. He's saying, is this what you want to do to them? That's his picture in his head, Um, an impossible load, burdened upon them so that they can't move with it. Peter finishes with a classic summary of what it means to be a Christian. He says, we believe it's through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we're saved, just as they are. So Paul and Barnabas, they get up next, they give a summary report of their recent trip, uh, missionary trip in chapters 13 and 14. And both speeches tell the summit what they've seen God do. And James brings the final hammer blow in verse 13. Now, who is James? He's the, he's the brother of Jesus, most likely, who wrote the New Testament letter that bears his name. And he's almost certainly the leader at Jerusalem at this time. And James brings the Bible to bear on what others have seen happening. And he quotes from Amos 9, and it's effectively a missionary quote from the Old Testament that basically says God has always promised to restore King David's line. And he's going to do that by drawing the Gentiles in. Jesus, the Christ figure, who's the entry point for all this, is how the nations will get in. And he says this Old Testament is consistent with what we're seeing before our very eyes right now. So he he. He links, he's brilliant because he links together current experience with the scriptures and he applies them and he says, look, we may be playing catch-up ball here, but this is God's plan all along. So the resulting letter and a delegation, that's the result of this. So look at verses 22 to 29. The resulting letter is put together for Christians at Antioch and it's a masterpiece of tact and delicacy. Firstly, even the way it opens, it addresses the, the brothers, uh, it addresses the, 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 the Christians uh, at Antioch and Syria and Cilicia as brothers, and it says, we're your brothers in Jerusalem. It doesn't all come out in the translation you have there, but the original language wasn't just believers, it was, we're family, we're addressing you as family, we belong to you, you belong to us. Verse 24 They distanced themselves from this circumcision party that had come down to teach without authority or approval. And they appreciate that this disturbed the Gentile church and caused uh, a bit of an uproar and an unnecessary burden. And they ask, they don't insist, but they ask them to abstain from just four things. Four things in verse 29, the summary of which James gave in his, um, when he stood up in the meeting in verses 20 to 21. What are the four things? Well, have a look at them in verse 29. At first glance, three of them look like Jewish rituals, but there's one in there that's 
quite confusing. There's food sacrifice to idols, uh, blood and the meat of strangled animals. But the fourth sounds like it's a basic moral behaviour. Now, that's unusual when you're listing a whole lot of suggestions for how you relate to Jewish customs to suddenly put in something that we would think as Christians is a basic prohibition. I mean, sexual immorality is not something that we have options on uh, as people who reflect Jesus Christ to others. So what is it? It doesn't fit. So you have to go back to look at what the original word was, and the original word there is the word porneia that we get the word porn from, which can mean a whole range of things. But in this context... Food and customs are being talked about. It could most likely mean irregular marriages. It certainly fits because, I mean, in Leviticus 18, uh, there's an outline there for the Jews about how they're to marry, and there are certain prohibitions there that they're not to marry within wider family circles. So you couldn't marry your sister-in-law, your brother-in-law, your cousin. And those issues were very, very important to Jewish Christians as well, but they would have meant nothing to the Gentiles. And in that case, it seems like they are four things that are being suggested that will help the Gentile Christians to relate better to the Jewish Christians. Now, the letter is asking the Gentiles to avoid the things that cause Jewish Christians to stumble. Now, it could be cynical at this point. You could say, why don't they just tell them they don't have to do anything? All they have to do is believe in Jesus. Um, Isn't it a bit hypocritical? Well... I don't think it is. It's brilliant advice, actually, because it recognises that that there are Jewish communities spread all over the known world of the time and that there are going to be Gentiles becoming Christians and there are going to be Jews becoming Christians and that it would be much better if they got along with each other than set up different you know, churches and different um, forms of Christian faith. So the Gentiles don't need to become Jews, but for the sake of conscience... They will do what's needed so they can be able to eat with Jewish Christians. And the Jewish Christians are not to let anything become a barrier to the Gentile Christians. So both groups get challenged to do something that's difficult for their hard wiring. Both need to give some room for the grace of God to overflow. And then the letter gets accompanied by the two pro-Gentile missionaries, that's Paul and Barnabas, and then two pro-Jewish camp people, leaders, who can then go with the letter and explain and enlarge on it and go through it with the Antioch church. That's a brilliant piece of conflict strategy for a church. Please go back to it when you're in in a bit of conflict with other Christians and look at it again to see. Now, what is the result of this? Verse 30 to 35, the Jerusalem letter was wonderful news for the Christians at Antioch. Verse 31, the people were glad and encouraged by the message. It led to acceptance and it led to fellowship. And verse 32, the Jewish leaders said much to encourage and strengthen their Gentile brothers. And after they left, Paul and Barnabas literally evangelised the word of God to more people. What happened was not crippling rules, but life-changing transformation. You wouldn't have the rest of Acts if this letter hadn't have been successful. So what things do we need to be clear on if we're going to see the good news of Jesus spread further from this place? How can the good news go out to the ends of the earth from here? Well, the first thing is you need to know what's the gospel and what isn't the gospel. What is the gospel? What isn't the gospel? Let me give you a little scenario. 
there's a youth ministry. And the youth minister is looking after a small but thriving church up here in the Adelaide Hills. It's not CARES, all right? And um, the youth minister has a girl called Jane join the youth group. Jane's from an Asian background. Her father stayed back in Taiwan so that they could live in Adelaide. And so he's earning the money. She's being managed by her sort of tiger Asian mum. And so she, does, she, she studies for hours and hours. They live at Stirling. Um, she doesn't play any sport. She doesn't go out on weekends. Jane's ambition is to be a doctor, a dentist or a lawyer. Now, after a while, the youth minister notices this. And he confronts Jane. He warns her that study has become her idol and that she must repent of this and that she needs to realise that there's more to life than study and that being a doctor may be the worst thing that she could do with her life. I mean, after all, it will take six years just to get the basic qualifications and that will gobble up her life and any time that she might have for understanding or being part of ministry in the church. In fact, if she's really serious about following Jesus, she should give up her dream of being a doctor altogether and think about something else. Perhaps even become a youth minister. <laughs> and at exactly the same time, a new guy turns up at the youth group called Jack, and he's 15 as well. And he's a surfing dude, and he wears board shorts even through midwinter. I notice there's someone here in that category today. Congratulations. <laughs> he hates high school. That's where the um, resemblance stops, okay. Um, he hates high school. He lives for the weekend um, because then he can go down to Middleton and he can surf his little heart out, and he's, his ambition is to leave school when he's 16, take up a trade, live at Victor, so he can surf every possible moment that he has spare. And after a while, this comes to the attention of the youth minister as well. And so he confronts Jack and he warns him that surfing has become his idol and that he needs to repent of this. And Jack, Jack needs to realise that there's more to life than the beach. And leaving high school would be a terrible thing for him to do because Jack will be wasting his God-given potential. In fact, if Jack is really serious about following Jesus, he should stop surfing now and get stuck into study. And the way that at that way he can get to uni and he can get a good, decent paying job, or better still, he might be able to become a youth minister one day. <laughs> so can you see what happened in that? What's happened is the youth minister has told Jane to become Jack and Jack to become Jane. But he hasn't told them the gospel. He's just told them how to behave. Many churches operate like this with new Christians. They unwittingly merge their own culture with the gospel. It's what missionaries call syncretism. And when they evangelize, they don't just give people the good news. They impose their own church culture upon the convert. And by doing this, Christians ask people not to follow Jesus, but to convert to the way that we do things in our church. And it's what was confronting the church in Acts 15. What makes someone right with God? Why will God accept them? Why would we accept them? Well, we believe it's by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, nothing more, nothing less than that by which we are rescued and acceptable. And if someone starts telling you that you have to do something else to be a Christian, then they're adding to the gospel. And you know, you know that if you add to the gospel, actually what you're doing is subtracting from it in the end. 
And I'm sure that some of you ended up in a church like Trendy Hills because some church tried to pull this stunt on you and you ended up leaving. There's a constant pressure amongst God's people to add to grace so that what people hear from us is, oh, I also have to be baptised and I also have to have certain experiences and I have to become a leader and I have to turn up to a minimum of one Bible study and a Sunday service, take on a role of serving, read certain books, parent this certain way. And all of a sudden, all those things that would be helpful for them in their Christian life now make them right before us and they think before God. They are helpful things, but they don't make them right with God. Jesus does. People can hear us talking about grace, but they don't feel, they feel they have to become exactly like you or like me to fit in. And if they do it that way, they will not experience the power of the gospel. Don't change the goalposts. Know what's the gospel and know what isn't. That's what we learn from Acts 15. Always back to grace. Secondly, recognise that there are things that come along when you're making progress that will threaten the progress, will threaten the spread of the gospel. It's easy it's easy to hinder the spread of the gospel. The reason why we do it is because it's all going too fast for us often. And so what happens is we're control freaks and we come in and we try and contain and control and determine where and how the gospel was spread. And in the end, we slow down the work of the Holy Spirit and we threaten the rapid deployment of the good news to other people. Jerusalem avoided that. They avoided a huge distraction that could have stifled the Gentile mission and they laid a great foundation for the wave of the next lot of things that happened beyond Acts 15. So think for a moment when it comes to this church here, if you have new Christians, we're not talking about people who are just inquiring, but new Christians who come and join this place, um, I want you to think what things they think they might need to do in this place to be acceptable that aren't about the gospel. Listen to James again, uh, because it's very, very important to hear what he's saying here in verse 19. We should not make it difficult for those who are turning to God. It will prevent us getting to the ends of the earth if we don't do this. Think about what things prevent people from turning to God that we're doing unwittingly. Thirdly, not legalism nor license. It's easy to go one way or the other, I think. On, uh, when you read this, think about it. If the Gentiles hear that they must be circumcised, then that's all they'll hear. They won't hear the gospel and that will become legalism for them. Once saved, if the Gentiles behave whatever way they want without reference to their Jewish Christian brothers and sisters, then they haven't heard the gospel either. That's license. So most... Uh, people who turn up to the sort of events that City Bible Forum put on, about half the crowd there are probably agnostics, atheists, or alter, you know, practising alternative religions and spiritualities. Most of that crowd would not distinguish what we're distinguishing today. They wouldn't distinguish between gospel and religion. Um, religion for them is, I obey, therefore I'm acceptable. I do these things, therefore I'm acceptable. The gospel is very different. It says, I'm accepted through Christ, therefore I obey and do these sorts of things out of gratitude. 
It's a very, very different starting point. Time and time again, what, what, uh, when we talk about this with people, when we talk about Jesus, they think we're talking about religion. And we need to make the distinction. Um, I've got a Muslim friend who runs a coffee shop in the city and he says to me, confides with me sometimes, he says, I'm fasting in Ramadan, I pray several times a day, I avoid certain foods. At the end of the day, hopefully Allah will let me into paradise. Hopefully. Now, that's the default mode, not just of a devout Muslim. That's the dev- that, that, that is the default mode of the human heart. And it's where we go as Christians too if we're not careful. Even after we become a Christian, we can gravitate to this. Most people, um, when they think of Christians these days, they think one of two things. They either think obnoxious, hardline, homophobic, fundamentalists, always telling me what I can't do. Or otherwise... They're these funny people who don't really stand for anything and uh, love everyone and everything and, uh, you know, would allow anything to happen. So legalism is truth without grace and license is grace without truth. And that's what they often see. But when you come into a church and you see people who really believe the truth, but believe that without a shred of superiority or self-righteousness, that explodes their categories of what they think religion is. The problem with legalists is that they, they can push people to do what they want them to do through social pressure, but they can't change the heart like the gospel can. And the problem with license is is that it artificially tells you you're so much better than what you are without ever dealing with the guilt and the reality of what you feel about yourself. You see, the Jerusalem Council shows you how to walk the line so that you don't tip down the legalism end or neither into the license end. Verse 1, unless you are, you cannot be saved. That's the starting point. Verse 11, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we're saved. Verse 19, don't make it difficult for those turning to God. Verse 31, the people were glad for the encouraging message. Have you seen what we've tracked in Acts chapter 15? This is a church that will do anything, cross any barrier, build whatever bridge, go through any door so that people who don't know Jesus can know him. They're concerned that people become not like them, but like Jesus. In fact, if you think about it, the onus is upon us to become like the world, to win them to Christ, not for them to have to become like our culture. That's how the gospel spreads, and it's wonderful to introduce people to a church like that. I hope you can. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for this part of your word that shows us all about acceptance and fellowship in the gospel and the basis for that. Help us to get the principle right 
with you so that it will have a powerful impact on all our relationships, the ones that we have in this place and outside of it. And we ask this for Christ's sake. Amen.